Well, I love that last uh, song that we sang, and I'm particularly thankful that uh, we were led by uh, Sharon Amoson this morning. She was standing right over here. She's walking out in the back there. And um, if you know Sharon and her story, particularly uh, walking with her son and his battle against cancer over the last few years, Aiden, you may have been praying for Aiden. And so for her to sing that particular song uh, was very, very meaningful and very encouraging. And uh, I'm thankful for the truth of the song. Now, we are going to start with a little math this morning. Now, I know it's Sunday, but don't worry, it's simple math. Now, I am trusting that you will do better than the first service. It occurred to me that one of two things was true about the first service. Number one, it was too early, or number two, they were, I started to say too old. That's not nice. The first service is a little older, and it's probably been a while since they were either in school or even had kids in school, okay? These are easy, and this is audience participation. I, I, I'm going, I will simply give you an equation. Actually, it's an inequality for you teachers, and you determine which is greater, greater than less than. Remember that? Here's a simple little example, three and two. Three is Greater, say it four or five, you said it, three is greater than two. Pretty simple, okay? So here we go. We're going to make it a little bit more difficult. We're going to make it a word problem. Pleasures and mistreatment, greater than, less than? Greater than, of course. Pleasures are greater than mistreatment, obviously. Who in their right mind would say mistreatment is better than pleasure? In fact, who in their right mind would choose mistreatment over pleasure? How about this one? Reproach and treasures, greater than, less than? Less than. Very good. Obviously, reproach is less than treasure. You're doing great. And again, by the way, these are word problems, and you're doing well, which reminds me of this bit of math humor. Uh, Every time I see a math word problem, it looks like this. If I have 10 ice cubes and you have 11 apples, how many pancakes will fit on the roof? (laughs) Answer, purple, because aliens don't wear hats. Is that math word problems for you? Yeah, that's. but you're doing great. Who would choose reproach? over treasures. Is that not what we've been taught our entire lives, to pursue pleasure and treasure? Isn't that what we do? That's why we work all week, so we can live for the weekends. That's why we work all of our lives, so that we can retire and play. Pleasure, treasure. But then along comes Christianity, and the values of life, the price tags of life, if you will, are switched They're turned upside down. Less than becomes greater than. What do I mean? Well, let's go back to those inequalities that you so ably answered much better than the first service and add something to each side. Pleasures of sin, mistreatment with God's people. That's a little harder, but the answer is the pleasures of sin are less than, of less value than, mistreatment with God's people. At least it should be. But is it? How about the next one? Reproaches, or excuse me, reproach of Christ, treasures of Egypt. Well, that ought to be a little easier, at least mentally, to answer. The reproach of Christ is greater than all the treasures of Egypt. That that may seem like a bit like new math, but it's true. And we may know that it's true here, but do we believe it's true here and live like it's true here? 
I am suggesting to you this morning that if you add Christ to any side of any equation inequality, he tips the scale infinitely so. But here's my question for us this morning. Do we live like it? Do we live like the treasure of Christ is better than, greater than anything this world has to offer? Would we suffer mistreatment and reproach as followers of Christ, recognizing that having Christ always tips the scale, even if it costs us? It doesn't matter. Take whatever you want. I have Jesus. You can't take him. Think about writing a book on Christian math. Because you see, somewhere along the way, we've lost our way. And along comes American Christianity and the so-called prosperity gospel, and they've changed the equation. They write it like this, pleasure plus treasure plus Christ is greater than mistreatment and reproach. Of course it is, but that's not the way that it goes. The promise, they promise if you follow Christ, you will have pleasure and treasure. Who wouldn't sign up for that? No mistreatment, no reproach, no sorrow, no pain, no suffering, no sickness. And they sell a brand of Christianity that says you can have it all. You can have all that Christ offers and all that Egypt offers too. Watched a video on Facebook this week where the guy up front, I'm not sure if he was the worship pastor or the teaching pastor, he didn't know anything, but he was probably the worship pastor. I'm just kidding. <laughs> he was promising that if praise goes up, blessing in the form of material prosperity will come down. Do you see the equation they promise? A little praise in, a little prosperity out. A lot of praise in, a lot of prosperity out. But is that what the Scripture teaches? Now, I know if you attend church here, you likely know by now that there is no place in the church for this so-called prosperity gospel. But here's my question for you today. Has that thinking infiltrated our minds without us even knowing it? I was talking to someone recently who used to gather with us. He disappeared, and I asked him, what, where have you been? What, what's going on? He basically said, well, I'm struggling. Lots of bad things have happened this year, and I'm having trouble trusting God. Wait, wait, wait. You mean the God of the universe against whom we have rebelled and who loved us anyway and sent his son to die for our rebellion? That God? Does God promise if we become his followers, no bad things, no challenging things will happen? Is that what we subconsciously expect? And so you go through a rough patch in life and you think, God, where are you? Really, where are you? We've switched the equation around. It's much more palatable now. Christ plus ple pleasure plus treasure is greater than trial and struggle and pain. Of course it is. Who wouldn't believe that? Who wouldn't want that? But what if, listen, what if the equation is actually Christ plus mistreatment plus reproach is greater than the pleasure and treasure 
of this world. Who would believe that? Further, who would want that? We are studying the book of Hebrews. The letter was written to a group of Jewish believers who were facing severe persecution, opposition, reproach, mistreatment because of their faith in Jesus. Martyrdom seemed to be right around the corner. It was costing them to be Christians, you see, and they were wondering, is it worth it? Should we just quit and return to Judaism? Christ plus reproach, mistreatment, Judaism, and comfort. Which one should I pick? Really? So the author writes to warn them, don't go back. There remains no sacrifice for sin there. He also is encouraging them. He gets to chapter 11, the hall of faith, and he lists many Old Testament characters who lived by faith in the midst of great struggle. Consider, Abel lived by faith and he offered a worship of faith and it cost him his life. Killed him. Enoch lived by faith, demonstrating a walk of faith, and his life on earth ended. No retirement for you, buddy. Noah lived by faith and built a boat in which he lived for a year with his family and a lot of really smelly, nasty animals. Abraham and Sarah lived by faith and received the son. Yay! But they never received the rest of the promise. Not a great nation, not a single foot of ground in the land of promise. Their descendants, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph, lived and died by faith, even though they too never received the promises. This faith in God, this, the, the, the faith in this God of the Bible doesn't seem to be working out too well, does it? I'm having trouble trusting him. It doesn't work out too well if you do the world's math. And again, we have many in the American church trying to change the math of seeming inequalities, and it does not work. It does not fit the Bible. One of my daughters showed me a post. I don't remember which social media site it was on, Instagram or something. On the top, it said, listen carefully, Chinese pastor arrested for preaching the gospel is praying that his fellow prisoners will receive Christ. On the bottom, American pastor buys his wife a $200,000 Lamborghini. And I wonder, which pastor am I? Because I'll go home this afternoon to a warm house. Might even take a nap. So how do these biblical characters do it? How do we do it, this living by faith? Well, certainly we look back to the fulfillment of the promise. Hebrews began with these words, God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers and the prophets in many parts, many ways, in these last days in which we live, by the way, has spoken to us in his Son. They look forward to the coming of, uh, of a Savior, the Christ. We look back to its fulfillment. Jesus has come. He's been crucified, buried, and raised again. But we're not yet living in the fullness of the kingdom. Nor are we promised to live in the fullness of the kingdom now. Further, these early Jewish Christians 
uh, like these early Jewish Christians, there is a cost to being a follower. You do understand that the world does not like our Christ, nor do they accept his gospel. Because the gospel includes the truth that they are sinners in need of a Savior. They don't like that. So, so how do we do it? We train our hearts to know what our heads believe despite the challenges and seeming inequities, inequalities. We remember the best is yet to come. We look forward to a country of our own, a city whose architect and builder is God. We look to the examples of Hebrews 11. And and like them, we live by faith, enduring suffering for the joy set before us, the ultimate, the ultimate coming Fulfillment of the promises. So let's look at our next example in, in the hall of faith in Hebrews chapter 11, none, none other than Moses himself. Read it with me, Hebrews 11, verses 23 and following say this, by faith Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. By faith Moses, when he had grown up, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to endure ill-treatment, mistreatment with the people of God than to enjoy the passing pleasures of sin. What's wrong with this guy? Considering the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. By faith he left Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king, for he endured as seeing him who was unseen. By faith he kept the Passover, the sprinkling of blood, so that he who destroyed the firstborn would not touch them. By faith they passed through the Red Sea, as though they were passing through dry ground. And the Egyptians, that which we want to pursue, treasure, pleasure, when they attempted it, were drowned. Five times in those verses, it says of Moses or those around him, they lived by faith. And that faith cost them. Moses gave up royalty, he gave up pleasures, and he gave up treasure. Was it worth it? Depends on the math you use. We'll only get through verse 26 today, where, because today I want us to learn about spiritual math, how following Jesus costs us, but it is worth it. While it may not seem like it, listen very carefully, while it may not seem like it, we are definitely on the greater side, uh, greater than side of the equation. Say that again, we are definitely on the greater than side of the inequality. And we don't need to add the pleasures of sin and the treasures of this world to be there. Take it all. I have Jesus. He's greater than, fill in the blank. The following two things which demonstrate the life of faith, which cost Moses faithful choices at birth, faithful choices in adulthood. Now, the first point is actually highlighting the faith of his parents. We learn in Exodus chapter 6 that their names were Amram and Jochebed. They they actually had at least three children, uh, Aaron, Miriam, and Moses. They were from the tribe of, of Levi. Like the rest of the Hebrews, they were slaves in Egypt. 
You'll remember from last week that Jacob led his family of some 70 strong to Egypt during a time of famine. His son Joseph had become prime minister of Egypt, so his family was therefore well cared for. But many years later, after Jacob and Joseph died, a new Pharaoh came to power, didn't know Joseph, and about how God had used him to preserve Egypt. By this time, the Hebrews were multiplying. Don't miss that. The promise was coming to pass. They were becoming a great nation, stars of the the sky, sand in the seashore. But this new Pharaoh, he didn't like their growing numbers. He was fearful, you see, that they would side with the foreign invaders should they come. So to, to stop the spread of these slaves, he gave instructions for the Hebrew midwives, that's the one who delivered the babies, to kill any male baby. They refused. So he gave further instructions that all male Hebrew infants be thrown into the Nile River. Crocodile food. Here we pick up the story in Moses in Hebrews 11 that we just read. You can also read about the account in Exodus 2. Let's do that. Now a man from the house of Levi went and married a daughter of Levi, and the woman conceived and bore a son. And when she saw that he was beautiful, there it is again, he was beautiful, she hid him for three months. But when she could hide him no longer, she got him a wicker basket, covered it with a tar and pitch. Then she put the child into it, set it among the reeds by the, uh, by the bank of the Nile. His sister, that's Miriam, by the way, stood at a distance to find out what would happen to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to bed at the Nile with her maidens walking alongside the Nile, and she saw the basket among the reeds and sent her maid, and she brought it to her. When she opened it, she saw the child, Moses, and and behold, the boy was crying, and she had pity on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then his sister Miriam, dude, she's got it together. Then the sister Miriam said to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call a nurse for you from the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for you? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, go ahead. So the girl went and called the child's mother. Then, the Pharaoh, then Pharaoh's daughter said to her, to her, take this child, said to Jochebed, take this child and nurse him for me and I will give you wages. So the woman took the child and nursed him. The child grew and she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter and he became her son and she named him Moses. And said, because I drew him out of the water. I love this story. Pharaoh's daughter actually paid Jochebed, Moses' mother, to nurse and raise him. And he's supposed to be dead. Hebrews 11 says, By faith, Moses, when he was born, was hidden for three months by his parents. Now, Exodus, we just read... <laughs> <clears throat> it says it was his mother, but she couldn't very well uh, hide that without Amram's participation. The, the Septuagint says it was his parents anyways. His parents hid him because they saw he was a beautiful child and they were not afraid of the king's edict. Now, several things to note about that one verse. First, it was by faith. The parents took the action and hid the boy. Interesting statement. We do not know how many infant boys were thrown into the Nile, but it seems unusual that this one wasn't. So obviously some were. But by faith, that is trusting God and doing what was right, the parents of Moses hid him. We don't know what the penalty would have been had they been discovered, but we can suppose it would have been rather severe, but they hid him for three months anyway. Why? At least the second thing I want you to notice, they hid him rather than killed him because he was, <laughs> notice, beautiful. Now, that's interesting. Both Exodus and Hebrews say that. 
What does it mean? I have not met too many parents who do not think that their child is beautiful. Of course they are. I have never met an ugly baby. They all look beautiful to me, but listen, especially my own. So so what does it mean when they looked at their obviously beautiful baby boy and decided to hide him? Lots of guesses. There have been all kinds of legends that have arisen around this story. Josephus records that an angel appeared actually to Amram and told him that their son to be born would be a deliverer of his people. Now, that's kind of interesting because in, Ju- in, in Stephen's speech in Acts chapter 7, he says that when Moses grew up, he killed an Egyptian because he thought that the Israelites would understand that he had been sent to deliver them. He saw himself as the deliverer. Where did he get that from? Apparently, his parents. Others have suggested that Moses had some kind of mark. John Calvin actually suggested this, something that clearly identified him as a special child. I don't know if it was a great big birthmark on his chest, big S or D for deliverer. In the end, we don't know, but there was something that caused mom and dad to hide this little Mo, which leads to the last thing to notice about this verse. His parents hid him because they were not afraid of the king's edict. That is the one that said, kill your baby boys. This seems rather obvious that you would not obey that decree, and yet some obviously did. And to not do so would likely bring deadly personal consequences. But they did not fear doing what was right. By faith, they hid Moses. They chose to do what was right, even if it cost them. And it could have cost them their very own lives. Because, you see, to obey a God they could not see was more important and more necessary than obeying a king that they could see. I would say they live by faith. And then we remember the readers, the Jewish Christians were facing persecution, opposition because of their faith. Soon that opposition would come from governing authorities, the Roman emperor himself and the like, declaring Christianity to be religio illicita, an illegal religion. What will they do? What would you do? What will you do? Many early Christians did not fear the king's edict and died in state-run persecutions, you know, in the Colosseum, thrown to wild beasts, things like that. We have it so easy. Our opposition is not governmental. It is not yet to the point of arrest or blood as in many places of the world. But what would we do if and when it comes? We must obey a God The king we cannot see over the threats of those we can see. Bringing us to Moses' faithful choices in adulthood, where did he learn it from? Have you ever wondered if if he was three months old when found by Pharaoh's daughter, how did Moses know he was a Hebrew? Because he was raised at Jochebed's knees. Who do you think told Moses who he was and maybe what he was there to do? So when Moses grew up, we see him doing exactly what you would expect of a Hebrew godly man. 
First thing, when he had grown up, actually when he was about 40 years old, Acts 7 says, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter. Now, contrary to popular opinion, there's no evidence that Moses would have been the next Pharaoh, perhaps. But, but, but perhaps Pharaoh had a son or perhaps uh, another grandson. The point is, Moses was indeed living in Pharaoh's household, in royalty, living in opulent, luxurious splendor. This was one of the richest nations in the world. <laughs> Sound familiar? It could have attracted his attention and distracted him from the things of God. Yet when he grew up, Moses refused to be called Pharaoh's grandson, the son of Pharaoh's daughter. How exactly did he refuse? Very likely the author is talking about the next event, which happened in Exodus 2. Now, when it came about in those days when Moses had grown up, that he, he went out to his brothers and looked on their hard labors. He knew they were his brothers. And he saw an Egyptian beating a Hebrew, one of his brothers. So he looked this way and that. And when he saw that there was no one around, he struck down the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. It is clear from this passage that Moses was identifying himself with the Israelites. And as he hid the Egyptian in the sand, there's a sense in which Moses was drawing a line in the sand. Pharaoh's grandson, Pharaoh's daughter's son, Hebrew. Acts 7, again, Stephen is giving his Old Testament survey. He says these words. It's at this time that Moses was born, and he was lovely in the sight. There's that lovely word, in the sight of God. And he was nurtured three months in his father's home. And after he'd been set outside, Pharaoh's daughter took him and took him away and nurtured him as her own son. Moses was educated in all the learning of Egyptians, and he was a man of power in words and deeds. I always love that part. He's a man of power in words. Remember when God called him to go and deliver the Israelites? He said, I'm just, I'm really faulty in speech. <laughs> really. A man mighty in our power in words and deed. But when he was approaching the age of 40, it entered uh, his mind to visit his brothers, the sons of Israel. And when he saw one of them being treated unjustly, he defended him and took vengeance for the oppressed by striking down the Egyptian. And he supposed, this is important, and he supposed that his brothers understood that God was granting them deliverance through him. But they did not understand. Again, this could very well be what the author of Hebrews is talking about. When faced with a choice, the son of Pharaoh's daughter or the mistreated people of Israel, he chose them. Now, we could debate all day whether or not Moses should have killed the Egyptian, but he, he was mistreating, this Egyptian was mistreating the Hebrew slave, and later God will kill the firstborn of every uh, Egyptian, and the entire army of Pharaoh will be drowned in the sea, to include <coughs> Pharaoh himself. God's time of judgment had come. Perhaps Moses acted a little rashly and prematurely. So he refused to be called Pharaoh's daughter's son. Second in verse 25, Moses chose rather to endure ill treatment with the people of God, the Israelites, than enjoy the passing pleasures, interesting words, passing pleasures of sin. Because mistreatment with God's people is indeed greater than the pleasures of sin. 
What does this mean? How was um, staying in Egypt choosing sin? Well, surely a life in pagan Egypt in Pharaoh's household was filled with sinful delights and sinful pleasures. Interesting the way he words that, sinful pleasures. It may be said, for example, you've heard it before, that sin can bring pleasure, right? I mean, come on. Let's be honest. Sin is fun. But it is nonetheless sin and rebellion against God and has disastrous temporal and eternal consequences. They cause problems in this life and certainly in the life to come. Don't miss that they are passing pleasures. They're just temporary. Sin may bring pleasure for the time, but they they always bring ultimate consequences, the consequences of death. It could also be referring to the fact that if Moses chose the people of Egypt over the people of God, the Israelites, that he would be choosing their gods rather than the true and the living God, he would be committing the sin of apostasy and idolatry. Apostasy, which was exactly what his readers were considering. Deserting Christ. Certainly would have been the easy course, right? Continuing to live in luxury in Pharaoh's house, bowing to false gods to include Pharaoh himself, without mistreatment, which one would you choose? Which one have, it, have you chosen? Moses says, I'll take mistreatment for 500, Alex. Who does that? Moses did because he considered that's an accounting term, that's a math term. He considered, he did the calculations and considered the reproach of Christ greater than the treasures of Egypt. Now you know where my intro came from. Christ plus reproach is greater than all the treasures of this world. That is crazy math. No, that is spiritual math. We remember the words of Paul to the Romans, for I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared to the glory that is to be revealed to us. I have another friend who's writing a book, and he's writing on this prosperity gospel, and he's going to write a book and suggest that the prosperity, the thing that the prosperity gospel people get wrong is the timing. They they preach that you can have it all now. The Scripture teaches, no, it isn't now, but it is coming. The glory that is to be revealed to us. Now, what does the author mean? Moses considered the reproach of Christ. That's interesting. Jesus wasn't born for another 1,400 years. Lots of discussion about that. It would... It could be the entire Bible is the story of Jesus, the Christ, and so any part of it is referring to Jesus, the Savior to come. After all, he would be the, he would be the one, the seed of the woman who would crush the serpent's head. He, he would hold the, the scepter of Judah. He would be the lion of the tribe of Judah. He would be the, um, the, the child to, to be born. He, he, there are all kinds of Old Testament prophecies that point to the coming of Christ. It could be any one of those, the greatest prophet. He considered 
reproach with the people of God who serve the true and the living God, trusting in his as yet unfulfilled promise regarding this descendant of Abraham through whom all the nations of the world would be blessed. Moses considered that reproach greater than the idolatry and wealth and riches of Egypt in some way, listen carefully, living for and loving the true God, which includes the triune God, the Son, Jesus Christ, is worth more than anything this world has to offer. Throw in reproach and throw in mistreatment, doesn't matter. Don't miss the last phrase, for he was looking to the reward. There it is again. These People looked by faith toward that which was to come that they had not yet received and endured great pain. And so the author is saying, the author is saying, can you, Hebrew readers, not do the same? Can can you look back and and see Jesus and, and look forward and hold on to what is to come? Can you look back at his death, burial, and resurrection, already accomplished fact, and can you look forward to the promise of his return and believe and suffer a little now? Can you, American Christian, not do the same? Will you only follow Jesus if the math is Jesus plus pleasure plus treasure is greater? Give me that carrot and I'll follow him. Will you follow if it's actually Jesus plus mistreatment and reproach is greater? Because Jesus always tips the scale of any equation.